0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio.
1: And online at SBNationLive.com.
0: From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: We're excited. I hope you guys are excited. And as Des said, let's let them hear it all the way down in Atlanta. We're still here. We're still here. We're still here. We're
3: still here! We're still here! Alright! Oh yeah!
1: Well yet. We are still here. I'm here in Atlanta for Super Bowl 53. Well, Ron and Rick, well, they join me later this week for what is a huge weekend, not just for football fans and TV ratings, but for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and frankly, for its executive director, Joe Horgan. As you no doubt know, we have 15 finalists up for election Saturday for the modern era class of 2019. There are going to be five chosen. And one of them, defensive lineman Richard Seymour, is with us today, as well as another one who is former tight end Tony Gonzalez. But what you might not know... Is Joe Horgan, whom I just mentioned, is retiring after the session, stepping down after 42 years on the job, and I don't know, Goose, but that's going to make this Saturday, to me, a very weird day. I mean, I'm glad to get those five more candidates in the hall, I guess, presumably eight, if you count the senior contributor nominees, but um, it's going to be bittersweet that we're losing Joe. I mean, I feel like saying, say it ain't Joe, or maybe, Shane, come back, or, oh, okay, <laughs>
4: Joe, come back. Yeah, I sat in on my first meeting in 1988, and Joe was there for that. Back then, he and I were the two youngest guys in the room. Of course, we're the same age. Uh, now we're... We're two of the oldest guys in the room. You know, the, the three of us have all taken steps back in recent years from our media lives, and Joe's entitled to take a step back now himself.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know, Ron, we got this news late last week, but I'm still surprised by it, honestly. I mean, replacing him, it seems to me, is kind of like the Patriots replacing Tom Brady, honestly.
5: (laughs) Well, you guys, uh, as I'm sure you know, Charles de Gaulle once said the cemetery is filled with irreplaceable people. Uh, So (laughs) I think we all understand at one point or another that uh, uh, it's time to go, and Joe certainly had a a really long run. Uh, The interesting thing is, had he stayed in the newspaper business, he would have been gone five years ago. (laughs) That's That's how it is. Uh, But I will say this, replacing his institutional knowledge of the game and the Hall itself, I think, is going to be simply impossible. So whoever comes in should just concede that point.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. No Oregon's no ordinary Joe. And we're going to sit down with him in this hour. As I said, we're going to also hear from finalists Richard Seymour and Tony Gonzalez, as well as Colts owner Jim Ursay and Hall of Fame voter Gary Myers, with Jimmy, of course, talking about the Hall of Fame candidacy of former Colts running back Edger and James. Rick and Ron, each of you have candidates to present Saturday. Ty Law and Richard Seymour for Ron and Rick. You got Johnny Robinson. Hope you guys are confident because the clock is ticking. I want to hear more about that, and we will right after this. You'll listen to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. How
1: about the weather this week? It was, it was colder in Chicago this week than it was in the Arctic Circle. I, I'm serious. I mean, I also heard that 75% of the country this week's going to have, like, sub-freezing temperatures. And, and, yeah, of course, that includes right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I guess, fortunately for the NFL and the L.A. Rams, the game is inside. Because, Ron, as you know, if it were outdoors, you might as well say goodnight. Because Tom Brady, he's 25 and 4 when the temperature is sub-freezing, Ronnie.
5: Well, that's true. That's true. You're right. He's also 5-3 and three in the Super Bowls, I meaning there's a nearly 40% chance he could lose on Sunday indoors, even if the temperature is 92 in the shade. There you go. <laughs> I guess that means
1: there's a 60% chance he could win. Hey, that? I saw something the other day I couldn't believe. And, and, and Ron, I know you probably couldn't believe this, but, Goose, I'll ask you. There will be an estimated $6 billion bet on this game, $6 billion, which is more, of course, than it will take to build a wall. So, Goose, <laughs> I guess I know now why there's no more government shutdown. The NFL must have intervened.
4: Well, Clark, the only way to tell for sure would be to check out the front lawn of the White House, see if it's littered with yellow penalty flags, <laughs> and go down to the Capitol Building and see if its hallways are littered with yellow flags as well, and then just hope it doesn't go to replay. <laughs>
1: Well, speaking of betting, um, I also saw that uh, there's so many people betting on the Patriots that uh, where the Open is a one-point underdog. They're now a two-and-a-half-point favorite. Ron, you on that bandwagon?
5: Uh, no, I'm on the neutrality uh, train, actually. What? That's what I've been trained to do. That's a neutrality. I'm, l- I'm like Switzerland. I leave the cheerleading <laughs> to the girls in short skirts uh, or the portly middle-aged men wearing laundry with other men's names on it. <laughs> so well, it depends on what. We're
1: yeah, it's for another day. Hey, how about you, Goose Man? Uh, no, you uh, I- you on the bandwagon, you're teaming with Nickel Roby Coleman.
4: No, I-, I expect the betting line to go even higher by Sunday. You know, the line has less to do with the actual perceived point difference between the two teams as it does the money wagered on the two teams. Right now, that money is heavy on the Patriots. I think Vegas will need to even out that money by the end of the week.
1: Yeah. I don't disagree. Well, I'll tell you guys. I'll be honest with you. I'll tell you who I'm taking here in Atlanta. I'm taking you guys, both of you, because each of you has a presentation to make. In fact, Ron, you have two, Richard Seymour and Ty Law, and uh, I like your choices of bringing home one of those winners, um, and I I think it could be Ty Law. Maybe bring them both home. And, Guzman, I I like your chances as well of cashing in with senior candidate Johnny Robinson. I I like you both, both you guys, and I like the chances, Ron, of, as I said, bringing home one of those two.
5: Well, I hope you're right on both counts, Uh, certainly. Johnny Robinson and, and, in my opinion, Ty Law have waited long enough uh, to be enshrined in Canton. Uh, and I think Richard should have his day, uh, whether it's going to be this year or not. Uh, certainly, they were the two best uh, players uh, on those early Patriots Super Bowl teams, which everyone, many, many people forget. You know, those were defensive teams. Not um, right in those days. Tom Brady was just trying to manage the game and not get in the way. Uh, and um, and I look at uh, you know Goose's chances with Johnny Robinson. As you know, look, like anybody's got Goose presenting him, uh, he's got a, a pretty good shot. So I don't know why he doesn't present you and I, Clark. That would be nice. <laughs> Damn
4: good question. Why not, Goose? <laughs> you know, I like, I like Robinson chances more than I like Law's because as a senior nominee, he's a standalone candidate. He's right. not in competition with the other 16 finalists for spots in the, in the class of 2019. You know, we'll discuss Robinson and the two contributor candidates, Bolin and Brandt, individually at the start of the meeting, then vote yes or no on them before we even start to discuss and debate the other 15 candidates. So Law and the other 14 candidates will be competing for the remaining five spots. It's going to be tight.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because each year I ask you about the process. I'm going to ask you again here because um, there are a lot of people out there who just don't know what goes on inside those closed doors. Uh, you know where we meet, how we meet, when we meet, uh, and how we decided on the next class. How about uh, educating them?
4: Okay, the, the 48 member selection panel will gather at seven on Saturday morning at the Media Headquarters Hotel. And start what could be an eight or nine-hour meeting. You know, as I mentioned, we will discuss the senior contributor candidates first, then vote on them before begin the selection process for the other 15. Each candidate will receive a presentation of anywhere from four to 10 minutes from his team rep. Ron, as you mentioned, is the Boston rep, will present Ty Law and Richard Seymour. The Steelers rep will present Alan Fanica. The Jaguars rep will present Tony Wistelley. We'll discuss and debate each candidate individually, and we get through the 15 will have a cut-down vote to 10. Then immediately after, another cut-down vote to 5. And the five survivors will then be subjected to a yes-no vote. All candidates must receive 80% of the vote to make up the class.
1: she didn't answer Ron's question earlier. When do you get to present either him or me
5: or both of us? <laughs>
4: when yeah. you guys retire. <laughs> Wait five years. Wait five years after you retire. may not be around for five years. That's the problem. <laughs> What's going to be
1: tougher, presenting Jerry Kramer or Ron Borges, and me?
4: <laughs> I hope hey, you guys Ronnie, don't have to wait it, as it, long it, as Kramer.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, as Goose mentioned, uh, it, it is a long day. In fact, in San Francisco three years ago, I do think we went eight or nine hours. Uh, that was brutal. It, it, it can be a grind. I mean, it's tough. Yeah.
5: Yeah, I know it is. I always feel badly for, for the last couple of presenters and the candidates that they're presenting. Yeah, right. Me too. You know, it's Deft. difficult, I think, for everybody. Uh, you know, you've heard 15, 16 presentations at that point. In some cases, you've heard new information. In other cases, you're, heard, you're hearing, you know, the third or fourth or fifth time about a particular guy. So I think it's tough. Um, uh, you know, on everybody at the end. Uh, so you, you know, you really. Whenever I have to present something, I look at the list. I'm hoping I'm not right at the start because then everybody forgets what you said. Uh, but not way in the back when no one cares what you said. Yeah, right. <laughs> so sort I of like to be in the middle.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what? You've, you've got to love it when they're those slam dunk candidates, basically because there's little or no discussion. I mean, three years ago, remember, it was Brett Favre. Pete Darty stood up and said, <laughs> Brett Favre. And then he sat down. And that was it. There was no discussion. I think it took six seconds. Um, this time we have Ed Reed. But, but the guy who presents him, Scott García of Baltimore, I've talked to him before, and he told me that he's going to make a short presentation, so at least he is going to present him. Um, but... It's going to be short, he said, two or three minutes. I I hope so, because, because what more can you say about Ed Reed other than
4: next? Let me say this. The worst thing a presenter can do is assume he has a first ballot candidate say his name, and then sit down. I'm waiting for the day when the committee says, whoa, wait a second, we're not done with your guy yet. With <laughs> all the hype these days over first ballot candidates, I think that day is going to come sooner rather than later.
1: I can only hope. <laughs> When's that day going to come when you say, Ron Borges, and sit down? <laughs> yeah, he'll say, Ron Borges, do what the hell you
5: want, guys. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Okay, listen. Behind Ed Reed, we got Tony Gonzalez. He's going to be on the show coming up. Uh, he's the next most likely guy to make it, and I think most of our li- listeners believe he too is a slam dunk, which he might be. Ron, do you have any
5: doubt about that? Well, you know, when you say doubt, you know that always sort of makes you people in the jump out say, "Well, you know, he belongs in the Hall of Fame," and, that, and that's not it. Right. Uh, but um, if we were going to, if we, if, if you and I were running a team, the three of us, we owned a team, and we were playing in the Super Bowl on Sunday. And I said, we got to pick from Tony Gonzalez, John Mackey, or Kellen Winslow to play tight end for us. Is it a slam dunk that you'd take Tony Gonzalez? Uh, I'm not sure it is. And if it isn't, then he can wait uh, because it should be a slam dunk. And there's no shame in it not being a slam dunk. Uh, Some of the greatest players I've ever seen and you guys have ever seen – Had to wait three times, four times, five times. I mean, Night Train Lane was four times. Goose was throwing rocks. He was just like eight years old at that time. He was hitchhiking the can and throwing rocks (laughs) at the voters.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you mentioned those guys, Ron, because the the thing that gets me is that it took John Mackey 15 years to get in, took Ditka 12, Kellen 3. But the assumption is that Tony Gonzalez makes it on his first try, and and he probably does. Let's be honest, he probably does. But Goose, as you mentioned, you can never really be sure at that position, can you?
4: Yeah, John Mackey changed the game at his position, turning tight ends into downfield targets. The next guy who changed the game was Calvin Winslow, who made receiving ability more valuable at the position than blocking ability. Now, Winslow waited three years to get in, Mackey, of course, waited 15. Gonzalez excelled at what he did, catching passes, but I don't think he revolutionized the position like Mackey and Winslow. So let's see how it plays out.
1: Hey, Gooseman, one other question. We had two wide receivers and two linebackers go in last year all in the same class, and we had two running backs going the year before. Can you see two cornerbacks making it this time? We've got Ty Law, who's up, as Ron mentioned, and we have Champ Bailey as well.
4: Yeah, I think Ron may need two corners to get uh, Law in, but I think that'll be a stretch. I I think that log jam at offensive line is going to have to be addressed. I'm sure that's going to come up several times in the room. Boy, if if Ron pulls this off, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. (laughs) (laughs) All i got to
5: do is... all I got to in do is right. stick with the truth. The truth will set him free and should put his <laughs> ass in camp. In
1: our right, eyes, Ron, you are a first ballot Hall of Famer. Anyway, let's take a break, guys. When we return, it's more on the class of 2019 with Hall of Fame voter Gary Myers. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
1: Well, we're joined now by our friend and Hall of Fame voter and, of course, best-selling author Gary Myers to talk about this Saturday's class, and the Hall of Fame class. And, Gary, first of all, thanks for being here. And, second, you're a guy who knows a lot about Tom Brady. you got a best-selling book on Brady versus Manning. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, what do you think he... And or the Patriots think when the Rams' Nickel Roby Coleman, otherwise known as the guy who committed that pass interference against the Saints, says that, quote, age is taking its toll, unquote, on Tom Brady, and that, quote, he will slowly start to reveal
6: himself, unquote. Well, I think it's going to be a busy week for the, um, for the Rams' equipment guy because of, instead of him wearing a number, he's just going to have to wear a bullseye on his jersey because <laughs> Tom's going right after him. Ha <laughs> ha well, okay, yeah, that. That, we'll wait on that till Sunday. But to, let's get to the topic
1: du jour, and that's not Tom Brady's Super Bowl 53. It's the yeah. Hall of Fame vote the day before. Now, you're going to present former Jets and Titans center Kevin Mowai, who's been a top-ten finalist the past two years. But he's part of a good luck of four offensive linemen trying to make a move forward, trying to make a move into Canton. Uh, question for you. What can you say now that you didn't say, let's say, a year ago, that can push Kevin across the finish line?
6: Um, I thought he was a very strong candidate. and What's new right now is I still think he's a very strong candidate. Um, I'm just going my strategy on Saturday because there are three other offensive linemen who are obviously Hall of Fame worthy. I have to find a way to, to separate him from the other three without being critical of the other three, obviously, because there's not much to criticize there. and I'm just going to point out that he plays a position that um, has been undervalued somewhat uh, in the Hall of Fame. That he was as good in this era uh, as anybody. Uh, his the closest comparison is Demani Dawson, and we know how great he was, um, and and how he revolutionized somewhat the center position by becoming a pulling center because he was so athletic. Um, I've come up with you know it's hard to come up with statistics for offensive linemen, but I think I've come up with a, a bunch you know just to point out how successful his teams have been. Whether he was in Seattle, New York, or Tennessee, how successful they were running the ball, and um, and Curtis Martin calling him the second quarterback on the field, and saying he wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame without Kevin. So I'm just going to point those things out. And you know, I think that he came really close the last two years. When we never give a total, but he finished somewhere between number six and, and number ten, and I think it was towards the top of that list. And maybe this is year that. Uh, it can get pushed over the top. Gary, how optimistic are you? Well Goose, um, as long as I have your support in trying to support Kevin and knowing the weight of, of your your opinion, um, then I'd be really optimistic. You I don't just know. Pass out my state your case. <laughs> there you go. I'll say that again?
4: Just pass out my state your case I did on uh, wrote on him. Okay. <laughs>
6: <laughs> um, I'll see yeah, I guess I'll, I'll do that. Um, yeah, no, I think I'm optimistic this year because, um, you know, we have three first-time guys who are going to get major consideration. I think that Tony Gonzalez and Ed Reed are lost. I'm not so sure about Champ Bailey. So there could be three spots open. And seeing how far Kevin made it in the process last year, if people don't forget, how highly thought of he was last year, then I'm certainly gonna, you know, try to remind them so I can build on the momentum of the last two years. And you know, again, just judging how I think the vote won last year, if there are three spots open, I think he'll get one of those three. So uh, the end result is I, I, I think I'm I, I mean I know I'm optimistic and I just hope I'm being realistic.
4: You know, we discussed these same four This will be the third straight year, and if we don't put them in, we'll discuss the same for next year. Do you feel you compelled to get up and say, people, we have to break this logjam. We've got to move this logjam along. Do you think that's necessary to be said to this room?
6: I think so, and... Um, I think I'm going to say to break this long jam. Why don't we put Kevin in this year and figure out who gets in next? <laughs> <laughs> How kind of you. <laughs> Very kind. Uh, but it just really reminds me of you know Chris Carter, Andre Reed, and, and and Tim Brown. That we would discuss those three guys for so many years, and they kept canceling each other out
7: mm-hmm.
6: until finally Carter got in, and then Reed got in, and then Brown got in. Um, and that's what I think will happen with these offensive linemen. We just have to get one of them in, and and maybe I listen. Obviously, you guys know we're not. No one's going to up and say, okay, let's vote for you know Fanica this year, and next year we'll take care of somebody else. Nobody's making a deal like that. That would be um, disingenuous and against the spirit of it all. But I think it's okay to say. Hey, listen, you know, whoever you really feel most strongly about, um, maybe that's the guy that you get in this year, because if we keep splitting votes, none of them are going to get in. So I think it's much better to try to do it one by one than continually talk about the same guys year after year. And, um uh, it's a tough thing because, you know, what I always tell these guys is the hardest part for them is not getting in and have to waiting a full year to go through the process all over again and then to get disappointed again. It, I can see why after 12 or 13 years, Harry Carson just said, hey, forget about me. I don't care anymore. And as soon as he said that, he got in. But um, I I can see the the aggravation and the angst that it caused him because it's not like, okay, you know, we're going to vote again next month. It's, okay, we're going to vote again next year. And that's got to be really tough on these guys.
4: Oh, Jerry Kramer, 45 years of
6: angst. Right, but um, how how long did he have you in this corner there, Goose? If you had stepped up earlier on him, he would have been in years (laughs) ago. What are you doing, man? (laughs)
4: <laughs> kicked over the water. I wasn't. I was not a committee back in the seventies, eighties. He was being discussed. Yeah,
6: yeah I. I, I, what I can never understand. I can't understand yeah. Drew Pearson not being in. Uh, there, there's a whole list of guys. Uh, I don't yeah. know how they made it through their 20 years of eligibility and now are competing against everybody else in the senior category. But once. I think this is just my 10th year on the committee, so uh, I can't feel responsible for guys like Drew because. I wasn't around when he was eligible. Right.
5: right. Now, you know, one thing I'm wondering, and I'd like to get your take on uh, Gary, is this whole what I consider uh, uh, mounting palather on one level of first ballot Hall of Fame. Everybody's a first ballot Hall of Famer, and I just want to give you a couple little numbers and see what Mm -hmm. your reaction is. Um, Forty percent of all the first ballot Hall of Famers in the history of the Hall of Fame have been put in in the last 18 years. Are we losing our way here? Uh, Night Train Lane waited four times uh, before he got in the Hall of Fame. Mike Haynes, three. Jimmy Johnson, 14, Mm -hmm. 12, something like that. Uh, There's this outside coronation of Champ uh, Bailey. Uh, Tony, Kellen Winslow waited three years. Uh, John Mackey waited, I forget what Goose said, 14 or 15 years. 15. 15. Fifteen years. Uh, well, we got to put Tony Gonzalez in this year, or it's just the worst thing in history. Uh, has the committee lost its way a little bit on on the significance of this whole thing?
6: Uh, you know, that's, that's something I've thought about, Ronnie, and um, I think that players have attached unnecessary value to being able to say, I was the first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, And I I, I use Carson again as an example. I tease with Harry all the time that I bet you never crosses your mind anymore that it took you over a decade to get in, because every time I see you sign your name, it's, you know, Harry Carson, HOF. And I I think that players consider it, It's such an honor to be the first ballot Hall of Famer, thinking that makes them really stand out, that if they don't get in the first time, they consider it, you know, disrespectful. And um, so, you know, when we're considering these guys on Saturday... I think there's going to be a lot of talk about, wow, you know, he's a first-time guy. We got to get him in, you know, because you know Tony Gonzalez was, you know, the leading receiver among tight ends of all time or whatever. And you know, how can he not be first time? Well, I mean, the world is not going to come to an end if, and they're not going to shut the doors of in Canton, and they're certainly not going to stop that renovation project they're doing if Tony Gonzalez doesn't make it the first time around. Um, When there's some other guys, and I always tell people. If we, if we put the 15 names on the wall and threw darts, and whatever five names we came up with, they got in, we'd be doing okay because all 15 yeah. people deserve to be in the whole thing. Right, right. And so whether it happens the first time or the third time or the fourth time or whatever, I, I just think that we need to pick the five guys who are most deserving, you know, forgetting about any honor that might go. With, with being the first time. Uh, and just pick the five people who are most deserving. And that's, like, the thing, and, Ron, I, I know you're going to speak about this on Saturday, even though we haven't talked about it between us, but someone's got to tell me why Champ Bailey should go in before Ty Law. Yeah, somebody's going and to tell me. just too, because now Champ Bailey's the first year, yeah, he's got to go in? You know, right. I don't agree with that.
5: Right. Well, I'm going to snow you guys under. With, I'm going to uh, – uh, <laughs> Who has a little idea what I'm I'm doing. I'm going to make it pretty damn difficult for people to do that. They may still do it, but they're going to have to swallow hard to do it because if the Hall of Fame is about a production and one guy has more production in every single area that there is that that you market by except for being prop queen, which is what I consider Pro Bowl, then if if we don't put that guy in first, then we don't know what we're doing, in my opinion. And uh, you know, and, and I don't. I say it in Ty's situation here, but I say it for a lot of other guys. And Goose and I have been on that senior committee for a long time, and we see the ravages of what happens when people get knocked out of the, out of the line. Because what ends up happening is Drew Pearson all of a sudden is in the senior pool. How'd that happen? Well, it happened because people kept pushing other people ahead of them. <laughs> yep, and that's what we got. Yep,
1: that's right. Gary, we got to run. But thanks so much for the time, and I'll see you in Atlanta. Maybe we'll take an Uber together from the airport. But anyway, I'll see you in Atlanta.
6: It would be an honor to share an Uber with you. There you go.
3: Thanks, Gary. (laughs) See you, Gary. Thank
6: you.
3: That was Hall of Fame voter Gary Myers. Up
1: next, it's Hall of Fame finalist Tony Gonzalez. He's not sharing an Uber with us. This is the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio, from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
1: Former tight end Tony Gonzalez, not only is a first-time finalist for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, he's widely expected to be first ballot enshrinee, and for good reason. He was a 14-time Pro Bowler, a 10-time All-Pro, a first-team All-Decade selection, and someone who is second all-time to Jerry Rice in catches, first in receiving yards among tight ends, and who, in 17 years in the NFL, missed only two games. Tony, thanks so much for not missing this interview. Great to have you with us.
2: (laughs) I appreciate it, man. I like that introduction. That was good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so this is your first turn as a Hall of Fame finalist because this is your first year of eligibility. And this, of course, is Hall of Fame week. Are you nervous? Are you anxious? What are you? What's your What's your sensations? You're getting closer to the weekend.
2: Uh, you know, a lot of people have been asking me that question. Um, yeah, I guess I'm a little nervous, uh, but I do. You know, it's kind of like approaching a big football game. You know, where you you tell yourself, "Yeah, you're excited." Uh, but at the same time, I can't do anything about this one. I mean, it's not like I, the, the the hay's already in the barn. So it's either it's up to you guys and, and people to, to vote me in. But it's an honor. Um, uh, of course, I have my expectations and I'm hoping for a good turnout. Uh, but no matter what happens, um, you know, I have a couple family members coming in town this weekend. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have a. A nice Modelo, a glass of wine, some tequila, uh, and, it, and we're going to celebrate. Cause, huh? Yeah, you guys are invited. Come on.
1: <laughs> we got to keep Ron away from the tequila. Hey, uh, listen, uh, the yeah. truth be told, we, we had Brett Favre on this show several years ago telling us that he really didn't think much about the Hall, that it was enough for him to have a long and distinguished career in the NFL, and that really that he didn't need the Hall to validate his career. I'm just wondering about where you stand. With that, have you thought much about it, and in how meaningful would enshrinement
2: be? It, it would mean a lot because if you, you look at the history of the NFL and all the great players that have come along, uh, to be able to say that hey, I was I was one of the best to ever put on a pair of cleats uh, at my position, and you know you, you gotta you gotta take a little bit of pride with that, and and and, uh, and, and certainly I, I do agree with Brett in that respect that. That, yeah it 's not going to make or break who I am as a person. I think my legacy stands for itself, uh, but it is going to be sweet uh, and and i would and, and I would cherish it and because it 's not just me that getting enshrined and really I not that I could take it or leave it. But I, like I said, I'd be okay, but more for like my family members, my coach, my high school coaches, my college coaches, than my teammates, you know, to be able to say that, Hey, we, we played with Tony uh, people take a lot of pride in that. And so it's not just me getting inducted into the, to all fame. It's going to be all of us going in there together. And, and, and I, you know, I, I think that's a big deal. I think that's pretty cool uh, that I was able to accomplish something like that. Tony,
4: Clark talked about your many accomplishments, but one that few people know is that you had 1,145 catches and only one fumble in your career. One. How is that possible?
2: Well, I, I appreciate you saying one, but it, it is two. <laughs> <laughs> two? Um, but 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 even two. You're right. That, that was here's how that happened for me. Um, uh, well, first of all, I have to go back to college for that. I mean, we're playing against Stanford University in the big game, Cal Berkeley, Stanford, and we're at their place. And I have a um um a great game. I actually had 150 yards uh, receiving. I think I've, I've, I never did that in the pros. And but towards the end of the game, we're driving to ice the game. We're up. And they throw me a little little out pattern, and I fumble the ball. They get the ball back, go down and score. And I remember after the game that you know having this great game that I had. I could I was uncontrollably crying uh, because I felt like I had lost the game for the guys. And I remember that feeling, and it felt so bad. And I, and I made a vow to myself, I'll, I'll never, ever be a guy that, that, that fumbles again because it was so important to me. When, whenever that ball was in my hands, it was like, man, you got everybody's dreams on the line. That's the way I looked at it, is that I had everybody's dreams on the line. Everybody was working so hard, and I didn't want to be the reason – that for getting a fumble to just because it, it kills the game it kills all the momentum and it can cost you it, it, it's the number one stat in sports is turning the ball over so i made that vow ever ever since then that, that when that ball is in my hand man i'm like i it, it it's for everybody uh not just me and i wasn't going to be that guy that was going to cost my team the game do you remember the fumbles I do remember fumbles. I lost them. I've, I've, I think I've lost two in my career, and I've, I've fumbled the ball. I think five times, uh, but I was able to get it back, <laughs> or somebody on my team was able to get it back. Right. Uh, but I, I really believe over the last ten years of my career, maybe even a little bit more than that, I don't think I ever fumbled the ball, and I don't even think it ever even came out because it was as I got older. Even and, and you stick around the NFL, you know. That you drop you you drop the ball, it hurts. But if you fumble the ball, oh my god! And the other team recovers it, it is it, it could it can change the game. No matter how well you can dominate every statistical category, so and, and then once you get a turnover, you know you, you can lose the game. So yeah, it was very very important for me to make sure that anytime I had that ball in my hands, I'm I'm gonna keep the ball. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Most people know you were traded from Kansas City to Atlanta in 2009. But as many may not realize, you came close in 2008 to, to becoming a Packer or an Eagle. Want to tell us about that?
2: Yeah, well, it was it was kind of the the same reason that I asked for a trade um, when 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 I finally did get traded. I mean, I had a couple of years left to my contract, but I was I was really trying to get out of Kansas City. Not because I didn't love it; it's just because I felt like you know I'm getting towards the end of my career. And and you know the window's closing, and I knew the team that we had in Kansas City, there was there was no shot in the next two years because I thought I'd play an extra two years. I knew that we that we're not a Super Bowl team. So I, I during that 2008 year, I went and asked for a trade. You know, I went and asked Herman Edwards that year. I said, you know, why don't why don't we you know part you know, on be nice, nice to each other and let me go to a contender and you guys get a draft pick, you know, that way we both win. And then, you know, we'll say that we all love our time together, but it's time to move on. And, you know, they, they, they didn't, they didn't grant me that wish, obviously. Uh, but I do remember that after, you know, the trade deadline went down and, and, uh, I thought, I thought for sure I was getting out of there. In fact, uh, Carl Peterson told me that I was going to to be traded, but that didn't happen. So I had to come back and face my teammates that year. Uh, And I remember I went to to Coach Herm and I said, hey, you mind getting all these coaches out of the room? I want to talk to my teammates one-on-one. And uh, and I stood up in front of them and said, look, I know there's some – because I was, at this time there was stuff being written in the media that I, had, I was kind of banning the team, and you know, and I was getting some flack in the media uh, by players, uh, players that have played before. Uh, Mike Ditka, I think, was one of them. Not Mike Ditka. Uh, yeah, Mike Ditka was. Um, and I so I had to address my teammates, and I stood up there in front of them, and I told them flat out, look, I'm not giving up on you guys. Uh, uh, and I told them everything that I had just told you, my reasons for wanting to get out of there. Uh, but I am fully dedicated to this team, and it was a big growing experience uh, for me, a uh, growth spurt for me. And I went out there and probably had – that was probably, you know, my best season that I've ever played in the NFL. Uh, I think it was first-team All-Pro that year. Uh, and, and we didn't win too many games, but I, pl- I brought it every single game uh, and a big part of that. Not because I think I always brought it, but I had extra incentive that, day, that year because I wanted to make sure my teammates knew that for sure I wasn't trying to abandon ships. By any means I was just trying to trying to win a Super Bowl trying to, and that's that's all you could ever want that's why you play the game mm-hmm.
5: now as you probably heard uh, this week down in uh, uh, Atlanta there's going to be a talking John Madden bronze bus in Atlanta you know using artificial intelligence and he's going to be able to talk uh, when the day comes that, that that you have the bronze ballot wherever the Super Bowl is and it's talking uh, what will it say beat Stanford
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, that only happened one time for me. Uh, <laughs> be well, what would it say? Jeez, what would it say? I uh, uh, got it. Would say, I hope it would say a lot because uh, it's hard to sum up things in one time. You know what? If, if you're talking football, I would. I always tell these people be fearless out there on the field. Stop caring about what people think, and never you can't be afraid to let go of who you've been um, on a football field or in life. And that's, that's what I always prided myself on. Every year, no matter what the circumstance was, I could be first-team All-Pro, but I was sure hell was trying to get better the next year uh, and, and always pushing the envelope. And I look at guys around the league, and I see Tom Brady. He's certainly an example of something like that. Peyton Manning, always trying to get better. You can never really uh, say, hey, I'm, uh, I made it. it. It never really crossed my mind as, oh, I, I've arrived and it's over. It, it was always it's time to keep going. And, and uh, yeah, I was good this year, but let's see how good I can be next year. Uh, and I think that's the other part is have fun. Um, my second year in the league, I've told this story before i led the league and drop passes my second year in the NFL. And it was the best damn thing ever happened to me. And it wasn't because I wasn't trying or wasn't working hard enough. I think I was, I was working just as hard throughout the rest of my career, but I just wasn't having as much fun. Uh, I stopped going out. I stopped, I really stopped drinking, uh, not, not that I'm alcoholic, <laughs> like that, but I, I stopped going out. I was young and single. I, 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 I wasn't having that much fun. and I was taking things way too seriously. So once I dropped the ball, I would let it just destroy me instead of just saying, "Hell, I'll catch the next one." Um, and I've really learned a lot about that is that you got to be loose to play this game. You got to be loose in life. you got to be loose on television. You gotta, it, it doesn't matter what it is that you're doing. You got. If you're not having fun, it ain't worth it. And so, uh, I hope the bus can say something like that. Kick back, have a couple drinks, go out if you feel like going out, uh, but take care of business. You got to lock in and lock out. Play hard, work hard, play hard, uh, and good things will happen. Hey, Tony, earlier I'd asked you about how meaningful the hall would be to you, but I
1: want to ask you sort of another question on that subject, and that's how meaningful would it be to you to be a first ballot choice? Because we had John Mack, was a he got in his 15th year of eligibility, Ditka in his 12th year. Kellen Winslow, you mentioned in his third year, but it seems like today people make a real big deal about first ballot Hall of Famer. To me, if you're Hall of Famer, you're Hall of Famer. I don't care whether you're first ballot or, or you're in the 10th year. Is that a big deal to you?
2: Um, Yeah, yeah. you know what? I'd be lying to you if I told you it wasn't. Um, and if it doesn't happen, it's not going to happen. But at the same time, if it does happen, to be considered a first ballot, that means I mean there was no question. <laughs> you know, that means it was... It was like, hey, this is this this guy. He's he's, he's unquestionably one of the, the the best ever plays. Not only is he one of the best ever plays position, it's a no brainer that you put him in right away. Uh, so yeah, there is a little bit of uh, um, uh, at least for me. I don't think it makes me any better than anybody else, uh, but it certainly does feel good. I think anybody's lying to you if they tell you, hey, you know, hey, look at to. <laughs> you guys know how that goes. He was like, I'm not a first ballot. I'm out of here. Be a little, yeah. you know, you can go, you can go baby on that, but, um, but it, you know, if it doesn't happen, obviously I'll still be okay. But yeah, I take a little pride in that. If, it, if I'm first ballot, that that that's special. That is really special.
1: Well, Tony, thanks so much for the time. This has been special spending time with you, and, and we'll see you in Atlanta this week.
2: Uh, all right, guys, thank you. Thanks for having thanks, me. Tony. It. Thanks
1: for You got it. That was Hall of Fame finalist Tony Gonzalez. Up next, it's a two-minute drill. You'll listen to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
1: Well, we're almost at halftime, so let's hear it, John Perry. Yeah, John's getting warmed up for his next gig. That'll be Super Bowl 53. Ron, you have the two-minute drill. Let's get
5: started. Ron says he doesn't know if the Super Bowl will be his last game. Do you?
4: It just would to be a good time for Gronk, Brady, and Belichick, all to depart the premises. No better way to go out.
1: Yes, I do, Ron, because he told me he was auditioning for your job.
4: <laughs> if it is his last game, is Gronk first ballot Hall of Famer? He played just one complete 16-game season in his career, and like Ron always says, the most important part of ability is availability.
1: Yes, he is, Ron. He goes in right after Julian Edelman. <laughs> oh, my God!
4: Should the overtime rule be changed? No, you'd be punishing the team that place a premium on defense.
5: Yes. If so, Clark, how? <laughs> Take the NHL lead. Play three on three. <laughs> if not, why not, Goose?
4: If you give both teams a possession, you further de emphasize defense.
5: <laughs> the NFL will not let Hall of Famer Jack Blood, uh, Youngblood award the Lombardi Trophy if the Rams win because he wasn't a winner. Has Parker Avenue
4: gone mad? It shouldn't be Park Avenue's call. That's the team's call. Park Avenue works for the franchise, not the other way around.
1: No, it hasn't gone mad. They're just not listening to the show, Ron.
5: <laughs> Why should the Rams bench Youngblood to please Goodell? Goodell ever they play shouldn't. with a broken leg?
4: They shouldn't.
1: <laughs> because they may get a four-game suspension for general awareness.
5: <laughs> Let's take this same issue, but move it to Dallas. WWJD, what would Jerry do?
4: Probably invite Tony Romo to accept the trophy because unlike most Dallas quarterbacks, he didn't get to handle <laughs> one as a player.
1: Was- <laughs> He'd Barry Switzer present instead of Jimmy Johnson.
5: Jerry wants to know why Julian Edelman's muffed punt was overturned.
4: Does he have a point? So do the 79,000 fans at Arrowhead last week. Maybe <laughs> Chiefs fans should file a suit for a replay of that game from that point.
5: <laughs> yeah, he does have a point on his head. Why did 8 million people watch the Pro Bowl?
4: I don't know. Why did $66 million vote for Hillary and $64 million vote for Trump?
5: <laughs> because the NBA was the other option. Did they count you two nitwits among the
4: audience? For the 20th consecutive year, I didn't watch a snap of the Pro Bowl.
1: And I'm with him. I had a better option, Ron. UConn women's basketball. That's the end of our first half. Coming up, we have Jim Irsay, Richard Seymour, and more on the class of 2019. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio.
1: And online at SBNationLive.com.
0: From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
1: Welcome back to Alan, two of the Talk of Fame Network, where in the next 60 minutes we'll visit with cult Sender Jim Ursaid and Hall of Fame Files Richard Seymour, and hear what's on Ron Borges' mind in his latest Borges or Bogus Screed, yes, Ron. I said screed. I don't know what you're going to say then, but I'm sure you didn't miss this one, Ron. And I'm sure you have a lot to say about it, but researchers at Boston University this week announced that former Falcons linebacker Tommy Nobis, that would be Mr. Falcon, who passed away in 2017, he suffered from the most severe form of CTE. And Ron, without hearing you, my guess is you're not surprised.
4: No,
5: I mean, if you saw how Tommy Nobis played, I mean, it would be pretty hard to imagine anything else Uh, uh, but it always saddens me these kinds of stories you know i read that one of his daughters talked about how difficult their home life was as tommy got older and ct began to spread she told a story about how her mom would check with him every day on his way into work and on his way home to see what his mood was that's pretty sad and frankly uh, football success is not worth that price
1: yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and, Goose, I'm wondering, with a game in Atlanta this weekend where Tommy spent his career, does, does that story start the CTE bus rolling again? I mean, it seemed to be a topic A for a while around the NFL until, of course, it, it wasn't. Do mm-hmm. you that changes?
4: Well, it's, it seems to be more of a story in the years Paul Taglebu is on the ballot, which he's not this year. You know, bottom line, football is a violent sport. There are going to be concussions. I, I do think the the sport is working to minimize them
1: another other Nova's question here, Ron. Now these back in the news, and I'm talking about. Tommy Novus, does that put him back in the Hall of Fame conversation? I know both of you believe he's Hall of Fame worthy, but he's never been a finalist or a semifinalist. I mean, could this cause the senior committee to take more of an interest in him?
5: Perhaps. You know, his name comes up uh, pretty much every uh, summer when we meet uh, in Canada in August, but he's never been able to get out of the room and into the big room. Uh, But uh, you're right. Goose and I both believe that he uh, should get his day in court, and hopefully will. You'd hate to think that this is the reason why, though.
1: Yeah, and as you mentioned, Ron, I thought it was interesting his daughter, I guess, said football was his father's life and, and quote, the air he breathed, unquote. Basically, she was saying he loved what he did, and he'd do it again. Anyway, it's still always sad to hear something like this. We're going to stop right there. When we return, we're going to hear from Ron. On what? Stay tuned to find out.
4: Thanks, guys.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
1: Well, as you know, this weekend is Super Bowl Sunday, and selection Saturday, and the two collide. Um... How, yes? Well, it's a good question. If the Rams win, the NFL has chosen all-fame finalist and former Ram star, I think Bruce, is the guy to present them the Lombardi trophy, which is great, except for this. It shows him over a Hall of Famer. Jack Youngbug, because, well, because Jack
3: wasn't a Super Bowl champion. Isaac was. Ron, you kidding me? Are you you good with that?
5: As well as you know me, you know the answer to that. That is ridiculous on several fronts. First off, the Rams don't work for the league office. The league office works for the Rams. Bingo. Uh, To me, they're and their owners should be able to pick whoever in the hell they want. They can have Mickey Mouse in there if they want. Uh, uh, Number two, Isaac Bruce, although we love him like a brother, never started a game for the Los Angeles Rams. He played one season in which he, he never started a single game there, and he caught 21 passes. Jack Youngblood played 14 seasons for the L.A. Rams. He played on a broken leg in the playoffs, and I asked him two days before the game, you really going to try to play on that leg? And he looked at me and he said, son, are you a football player? I said, apparently not. Uh, you know, I mean, are you kidding me? He's in a Hall of Fame as an L.A. Ram. You see the theme? Yeah. L.A. Ram. I mean, here's the logic, if they, uh, the great danger. Take this forward, and the Cleveland Browns win the Sol- Hall uh, the Super Bowl next year. Jim Brown can't give him the trophy because he didn't win the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Idiots! <laughs> well, I, I think it'll be an even better story if Bruce is elected to the Hall of Fame the day before. But by and large, Ron's sure. right, the Rams should be able to pick the player they want, and I'd want the guy who played in the Super Bowl with a broken leg for the franchise.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Um, let's look at the flip side, Ron. If the Patriots win, what are the chances that you are going to be making the presentation?
5: <laughs> Probably a better chance than my pal Seymour who, uh, who held out on him twice. <laughs> as great a player as he was. Uh, they don't forget around there. Uh, although he does have three rings, which is three more than me. <laughs> well,
1: Anyway, uh, I want to mention there's also another area where the Hall and the Super Bowl will connect this coming weekend. And that's the ever-present NFL experience. As Jimi Hendrix said, are you experienced? Well, that experience is in Atlanta, and there, or here, for the first time, the Hall of Fame is going to view a Talking Bronze Bus. Yes, you heard Ron talk about that with Tony Gonzalez in the first hour, but, uh, Talking Bronze Bus. It's the first of its kind. It was developed in collaboration with a group known as Stat Muse, which apparently is a leader in conversational artificial intelligence for sports. Hmm, wonder why they haven't contacted us. Well, anyway, uh, it's going to feature the bronze bust of 2006 inductee John Madden. And remember, you guys should, and I think I do, in his acceptance speech. Most people would if they heard it. Uh, he said something about the bus talking to each other every night after they closed the doors to the hall. Well, now you don't have to wait on ten or the night to talk to John Madden, because Goose, he's going to be there in all his bronze glory, maybe even talking about Turduckens.
4: If you can mic up one, you can mic them up them all. And I'd love to hear what those other 317 Hall of Fame busts have to say to the bust of Terrell Owens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, uh, you know. Actually,
5: you know, if, if I'm talking to uh, John Madden's artificial intelligence, I want to ask him one thing. How many bottles of Maalox did he actually drink in the locker room after Raider Games and on team flights? Because the <laughs> last couple of years, he was consuming Maalox the way most guys drink Coca-Cola.
1: Yeah, didn't like those flights. They hated him.
5: Unbelievable.
1: Hated him. Um, hey, uh, Ron? Yes. The Goose Man, as you know, he's in the hall. He's already in the hall 2004. What do you think he'd say if they had a
5: talking Goose bust? <laughs> Easy. He would say this. Dr. Data here just like to inform you of one thing. The Spartans of East Lansing would have crushed the Spartans of Sparta.
4: <laughs> no, I'd say we need more defensive players in this room. <laughs> and,
5: l- and less instant replay in the game. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right.
1: Be right on both. Hey, uh, spoiler alert, guys. By the way, look for that when the Super Bowl returns to Dallas. I don't know when that's going to be a goose, but maybe when you don't have another ice storm. Um Okay. Speaking of bus, let's get back to the, the the group that's in line for five of them this week and for the modern era. We've heard from Tony Gonzalez. We heard of in the uh, the first segment in the first hour, and we're going to hear from Richard Seymour a little bit later. But I mentioned Ike Bruce when we started this segment, and and I wish we could hear from him. But he's not here, um, we are, and he's the only wide receiver up for the Hall, and frankly, I'll be honest with you, I think his chances are slim, again, I mean, he's been a finalist twice before, and, and neither time did he make the first cut to ten. But I, I want to ask you, and I'll, I'll start with you, Goose, why? I mean, um, why aren't selectors more interested in him? He had the numbers, he won a Super Bowl, he made the game-winning catch, and, and he was, as, as he pointed out on our program a couple years ago, or last year I guess it was, he wasn't divisive. He was the MVP of the Rams, and later he was the MVP of the 49ers. What's missing from his candidacy other than the 80% of the
4: votes? He's right. He wasn't a diva. He didn't scream, pull imaginary penalty flags out of his back pocket, and spend days upon days thinking of touchdown celebrations. The quiet ones never get that attention or seemingly right. re- the respect they deserve. Now, if he was a diva, he'd have the public cuss us out for keeping a misunderstood receiver out <laughs> of the hall. You're right. But are only- right. But but only one person was carrying his flag, and that was Bruce himself, and he carried it reluctantly.
5: Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think uh, uh, there's a uh, people prize things these days that for a long time were not part of most Hall of Famers. You know, I mean, yeah, uh, and, and certainly Isaac Bruce is a throwback uh, to those days and those guys. He was a great player, but I think he uh, he, he believes that uh, if you're a great player. Why do I have to tell you
3: I'm a great player? Yeah. Well, obvious.
1: that said, though, Ron, if Ike Bruce were to get in the hall, and say, oh, let's just say this year, what would his talking bus say when it's set up at the next Super Bowl?
5: How the hell did you guys put To in here before me? <laughs> <laughs> I could be a diva now. <laughs> Well, that's the cue for another talking head.
1: That's what he just heard from. (laughs) He's not in Canton, but he's in Boston. Yeah, our own Ron Borges with his Borges or Bogus. So, Ron, take it away.
5: Well, in this day and age of uh, high-tech mania, football game results should not be decided by clearly blown officials' calls. But there's one thing worse than that, guys. Football game results should not be overturned by judges in black robes, even if the judges in black and white pinstripes blew it. It's called human error, folks. It happens every day. Come to my house. It's bad enough that NFL referees missed clear pass interference, not to mention a knockout shot to the head at the end of the NFC Championship game that likely cost the Saints a trip to the Super Bowl. Too bad. It's worse, though, when their fans are allowed to sue to overturn the outcome in a Louisiana court. One is bad. The other is bogus. Saints fans are arguing that Commissioner Goodell has the authority under Rule 17 to reverse the outcome if he finds, quote, extraordinarily unfair acts occurred that sent the Rams to the Super Bowl. We'll file that under bogus. Nowhere does it say blindness is such an act. And judging by one extraordinary anymore. What the NFL claims is that A, Rule 15, which says the referee's call is final, supersedes Rule 17, meaning for the first time in in, uh, recorded history, Roger Goodell actually agrees that someone on Earth has more authority than he does. This is not bogus. That is welcome. Now, look, this is a frivolous lawsuit and a sign of our all too contentious times. The outcome of a game should not be occupying the time of a federal judge as it is this week, while Susie Morgan listens to arguments about not only the merits of the case, but even who should hear it. How about ruling no one should? Or, if you just want to placate Saints fans, rule in their favor, but award them this. Not a redo, but a po' boy. Paid for by the NFL and delivered to their home on Super Bowl Sunday. That would not be bogus. That would be scrumptious.
4: Hey, Ron, should the Viking fans file suit for all those rough and the passer calls by the Saints that weren't called in the 2014 NFC title game that pummeled Brett Favre into retirement and sent the Vikings home for the season?
5: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, Guzman. You want to talk about extraordinarily unfair acts. They did everything but bludgeon the guy with a mace. I mean, it was, it was absurd what they did and got away with in that game. So you're right. I mean, like a lot of things, you better be careful what you wish for because you start opening these kinds of Pandora boxes and you're going to have federal judges and state judges and local judges uh, and some justice of the peace ruling on football games, baseball games. I mean, it's absurd. It's, it's, it's crazy. Look, guy made a mistake that you lost the game.
4: Sorry, we should have been lawyers. We would have yeah. been good lawyers.
5: Yeah, we
1: should have been judges. So wait a minute, I am. Hey, Ron, thanks so much. Uh, <laughs> one question for you: uh, What are they going to make a Ron Borges bobblehead like the Ed Hockley one you bought last month?
5: <laughs> I think that would be good. That would be very fitting. My wife would like that. She could just whack it in my head, which is sort
4: of what happens anyway. <laughs> you know what? You know what the bus? You know what the bus would chant if there's a Ron bobblehead? Lock him up. Lock him <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's
1: right. Guess we're going to have to wait on that. <laughs> anyway, yeah, up next you? is Indianapolis Colts owner Jim Irsey to talk about the winning edge. Stay tuned, and you'll know what I mean. This is the Talk of the Network.
0: This. Is- This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios,
1: here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well,
3: I go back
1: a long way with our next guest, all the way back to 1982 when the Colts were in Baltimore. And I was a beat reporter, but... He's not here to talk about me or Charm City. Colts owner Jim Irsay wants to talk about a finalist for the Hall of Fame class of 2019, and that would be star running back Edgerrin James. Now, Edge is the NFL's 13th all-time leading rusher. And this is his fifth year of eligibility and third as a finalist. And this is what's interesting about this. The four running backs directly in front of him on the all-time rushing list, they've been enshrined in trying to as have the three backs directly behind him. So what's the problem? Well,
3: that's why Jim Irsay is here. And, Jim, thanks so
1: much for joining us. Great to hear your voice.
3: Hey, thank you so much, Clark. And good to talk to an old friend. I can't believe, uh, yeah, we are getting older, huh, buddy? Uh, <laughs> soon pretty for uh, 40 years in the league uh, very soon. But, but, uh, you know who's counting but um uh yeah thank you it's great to be with uh Rick and Ron as well a lot of respect for you guys and uh you know we certainly appreciate uh, in the n f l and as all owners uh all you guys do uh you you guys are such a part of the fabric of our of our whole game uh and we uh, you guys mean a lot to us and I appreciate the time I know you guys are busy men you got a lot of subjects you're running through i mean i, I this is a simple case. I mean, you know, uh, I guess I'm 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 before the judge, and I'm I got my time. The judge says, okay, you know, get up there, son, and 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 tell us why your client, uh, you know, should go in the hall of fame, and 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 I I, I mean I, I kind of break it down a, a couple different seg- segments, maybe three ways: beginning, middle, and end. And it's so simple, honestly, guys. I mean, first of all, it, you know, in his first two years. He had over thirty-two hundred yards. Uh, only Dickerson had that, I, and and I'm not even going to start talking about Eric, my ex teammate at SMU. But but uh, you know, um, I, I mean, no one else except him and Dickerson had that over thirty-two hundred yards. And oh, by the way, we're a passing team with Peyton Manning. Um, you know, uh, he, you know, you get to the middle of his career. I mean, after that, you know, uh, you know, five seasons over a thousand yards, two seasons over 1,500 yards. Two seasons over fifteen hundred yards, and and that's just in the middle, you know, of his, his career. You know, he goes on and he goes on, and and when it's all said and done, uh oh, by the way, you know, you know he has five thousand yards more than Terrell Davis. Terrell Davis. I mean, it, it is such an open and shut case. I obviously, got a passionate uh, advocate here um, with my dear friend Edger and James. Let me just explain it this way guys when it comes to Edrin james in the hall of fame i feel like you know i'm a lawyer before the judge pleading my case for my client to enter the hall of fame and and i look at it as a, as kind of a three-tier aspect you know i look at the beginning of his career and i say hey there's two guys him and eric dickerson who had 3200 yards or more total yards uh in their first two years i mean Dickerson, Edwin James, more than 3,200 yards. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a statistic that's just absolutely incredible. Um, and, I you know, it, it's mind-boggling. And, and oh, by the way, we're a passing team who drafted Peyton Manning and who had uh, Marvin Harrison already, uh, two Hall of Famers. But, um, uh, again, you know, going into the middle of his career, you know, look at... Five seasons more than a thousand yards. Two seasons, fifteen hundred yards or more. Two, and this is in the middle of his crop, a lot of hits and everything else. Two seasons, fifteen hundred yards or more out of that out of that five thousand 5, 5, yard plus season. Um, you know, in a row, five seasons, a uh, thousand yards or more on the ground. And again, you know, when you come to the end of his career and you look at things like, you know, saying. Hey, Edron James had 5,000 yards more than Terrell Davis, I mean, who was a great back. Mm -hmm. I'm talking 5,000 yards more rushing yards. I mean, absolutely incredible. To me, this is a, a shut and closed case. Look, at he's the only guy an owner gave a Super Bowl ring to who didn't play in that game. Why did I give him the ring? And why will I never give anyone else a ring? like that because that's how special he was to our team you ask anyone in our organization you ask peyton manning who is the most valuable colt when he came to the franchise it was edger and james you ask bill Polian. you ask anyone he was the machine that drove what you saw i promise you i was there and i can tell you that and guess what guys I'm not even going to mention his knee injury because I don't have to. I don't have to. You know what? Major major knee injury, no need, no need to even talk about it. When, when,
5: this is, it's great to hear the, the passion you have for, for Edge, uh, Jim. And I'm just wondering, when you think of him, is there a specific play or a game that immediately comes to mind that you remember? Like, wow, what a play that was, or what a day that was.
3: It, it, there are, I mean, I wish I could limit it to one, you know, first of all, both him and Peyton did something that was just completely remarkable, but not, it should be expected, I guess. Their first play in, in a preseason game goes for a touchdown. You know, we hand it to Edger, there's a lot of anticipation. What does he do? He rips it off for, like, a 37 to 40-yard touchdown run. First time he touches the ball in the NFL. You know, another play down the sidelines you know just you know 35 yard uh, bomb from Peyton you know uh, tiptoe catch in the end zone I mean this this is a big strong running back who is that type, that that athletic but see I was there you know Rick and, and and Ron and Clark when things happen like this we're in the locker room before playoff game and a young player says. Boy, we got to win this game and get that bigger check. Um, we got to get the winner's check. And Edge grabbed him by the collar and put him up against the locker and said, Son, this isn't about money. This is about greatness and this is about the ring. And don't you ever forget it. And I mean, that's the type of leader he was. And, you know, trust me. He was a man of few words, but no one was more respected in that locker room than and James. And he absolutely, unequivocally, if he's not a Hall of Famer, then no one is. I, I mean, I, I can't speak. I mean, there's other Colts I know you guys will be reviewing as the years pass by, you know, and, and, um, you know, and, 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 and they should be talked about um, and they will be talked about. But to me, this one is a clear-cut one. It's just got to be a matter of when not if I mean he has to be in, I and mean, he just absolutely does. I know what he meant to the horseshoe. I know he was the one you know who absolutely you know made us who we were in Indianapolis and put that shine back on the horseshoe you know for many, many decades now going forward and 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 a great man he is.
1: Hey, Jim, I want to go back to the 1999 draft when you took him with the fourth overall pick and you took him ahead of Heisman Trophy winner, Ricky Williams. What were yeah. your discussions then with Bill Polian before that pick?
3: Well, I tell you, I was saying, Bill, you know, Dick is willing to give us his whole draft, you know? Are you sure? We don't want to take it. And, and he didn't bat an eyelash. He said, Jim, trust me. I'm sure, you know, and, and, uh, uh, you know, I, you know, obviously Bill and I go back almost, you know, well, 40 years basically and as, as, uh, competitors and then eventually, him working for me but you know uh bill uh you know is as good as they get and he you know boy did he have a beat on edger and i mean it was it was a beat on this guy and and it was a typical you know make sure there's a lot of smoke screens and doesn't donate anyone, deer mention his name to anyone type of thing um and that sort of thing but but man i i tell you you know the the mood was that that look at this guy is clearly the pick. He can do it all. You know he'll you know unselfishly block and just knock the hell out of a linebacker. You know he'll catch the football as good as anyone out of the backfield. And not only can he run inside, he can run outside. I mean, you know, if you have any questions about Edger, and just put on our Seattle game uh, in two thousand and um, you know. Over 200 yards on the ground, uh, um, you know, would have had even more before we pulled him. Uh, and he—he he, he was just something that, that's so special, and—and and, um, and is a special man. Uh, um, and I mean, you have to remember guys like and, made so many guys around him better, and he was the one that settled Peyton into being Peyton. He was the one. I mean, with, with him in the backfield, everything changed for Peyton. That's the reason in 99, you know, Edgeron wasn't. He's just like Nelson this year and Leonard for us. He was an all-pro as a rookie, which only guys like Gail Sears and Dick Buck just do those sort of things.
1: Jimmy, thanks so much for joining us. We've got to run, but uh, best of luck with Edge Reaching Cannon. One of these days I want to talk to you about Todd Rundgren getting into the Hall of Fame, but that's for another day.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you got it, guys. Well, uh, thanks for uh, letting me uh, uh, chirp with you uh, gentlemen, and, and uh, you know I'll probably see you around Atlanta. Yes, I will. will. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Okay, thanks, Jim. guys. Thank you. That
1: was Gold Soner Jim Mercy. Up next, it's Hall of Fame Finals Richard Seymour. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the talk of fame network on sb nation radio from the irani auto parts studios here's clark judge rick goslin and ron borges
7: our next guest isn't making his first visit to the talk of fame network i I think we've had him on twice before well anyway he makes his first visit as a finalist for the pro football hall of fame's class of 2019 this weekend when the selection committee meets the day before super bowl 53 in atlanta talking of course about Richard Seymour, who was a two-gap nose tackle, an occasional defensive end for a dozen NFL seasons, and who, for at least half of those, was considered the best defensive lineman in pro football, a reputation that was confirmed by his selection to the 2000s all-decade first team. Now, three other defensive linemen from that team, that would be Michael Strahan, Warren Sapp, and Jason Taylor, they've already been elected to the Hall. And Richard, well, Richard's hoping to become the next. And Richard, I understand you just returned from the Bahamas, so I didn't realize we were that important to you, but thank you very much, and thanks for joining us.
8: No, no, not a problem. Glad to be on. Anything for the Hall of Fame, Yay. You, uh, you'll you make time for it. It's football heaven, you know, so <laughs> no, no complaints on this side.
6: <laughs> uh, you know, Richard, because of the style of defense you played here in New England for most of your
5: career, you don't have the usual sort of 100 sack numbers that seems to be essential for defensive linemen these days at the Hall. Um, so were you surprised at all to find yourself a finalist so soon uh,
8: after retiring? Um, well, well, let me say this. Uh, I think it's a tremendous honor um, to be considered uh, among the greats to ever play the game. You know, um, you, you know, surprise, uh, I'm not sure about surprise may be the word, but I definitely, I, I would definitely say humbled and honored. Um, would definitely be the first words that I choose. Um, you know, playing in that style of defense, uh, you know, you know, for us it was about stacking up wins. You know, no, no different than a quarterback. You know, doesn't really care about passing yards or touchdowns or whatever. You know, like the most important stat is win. You know, so I think for us, uh, the team that we played on, um, you know, it was about sacrificing so for the betterment of the team and. uh you know, I think one thing you always look at is like the impact that a player makes on a team. You know, I think, you know, sometimes uh, the stat sheet can, you can have like an all pro day with no tackles and no sacks. When when you're taking on double teams, teams can't run your way. Um, the effect that you have on uh, even a, a, another defense, like a lot of times I played D tackle, D in, but we had outside linebackers. And some of those guys, even like Roosevelt Colvin, may be a little smaller and teams wanted to run on them, but. You know, with me being over there and some linebackers, like, uh, he was just in a great system where, you know, teams just couldn't run his way and he could just pin his ears back and rush the passer. So, it's a lot of different things that um, makes a great player. Um, I think one thing for me that I always tried to do was, what did the offensive linemen that had to face me, what did they say? You know, um, I just always tried to garner the respect of my peers and the guys that I played against. So, That was extremely important to me.
4: Mm -hmm. Richard, as you know, you're the only defensive lineman among the 15 finalists this year. Do you think that will help your candidacy? And how much attention do you pay to the process of getting elected?
8: Yeah, well, I know it's a a lot of great players. I mean, I'm sure voters are um, overwhelmed with so much to consider. And I'm glad I don't have that job, you know. uh, but, I mean, I don't think it can hurt in, in terms of being the only defensive lineman that's ready. And I think, you know, that the case that every defensive lineman that is on that stat sheet um, is already in, I, I think that helps as well. And uh, like I said, I mean, I just, um, you know, for me, I just tried to go out and play the game the right way. I, I never really too much thought about uh, things that I couldn't control in terms of Hall of Fame and, and Pro Bowls or All Pros and that sort of thing. I just wanted to... Uh, make a immediate impact when I got drafted and uh, be the best that I could be for, for my team. And, you know, coming in, I didn't know how I would measure up, but I just knew I was going to give it everything that I had. And um I, I just think, for me, I just wanted to come out and compete and – uh go against the best and try to be the best. Whatever it took. I'll tell you this. My wife thought I actually loved working out until I retired. She was like, You don't enjoy working out so much and I was like, the only reason I worked out was to try to be the best. <laughs> so it was a lot easier then, so <laughs> Yeah, no, but it's fun. It was, uh-huh.
7: Well Richard, as these guys will tell you, I love me some number twelve on those Patriots. Nevertheless, Ron has passed me a sheet to ask you this. Tom Brady gets a lot of credit for those five Super Bowl rings. But do you consider those first three Super Bowl champions, New England, offensive teams or defensive teams? And I can only imagine what you're going
1: to answer.
8: He's the honk. Brady, honk. Well, I mean, I, I'll say this. I think everything – I mean, if you go back and look at the film, I mean, we were no question from 01 to, like, 04 or maybe 05, a defensive football team, and – after those three Super Bowls, well, I'll say this. The first two two Super Bowls, for sure, we were defensively. But then it started to change in, like, 03, But I mean, we were really good. I thought '03 3 was probably our best team, um, and we were stacked defensively. Um, but I thought offensively, uh, it actually, they picked up their level of play to where we were uh, defensively. And then you just saw where Tom Brady just took over. Um, that offense and the command that he had on offense and um the ability to play big in big moments and big games is you know really i think um you know the trademark of a really Hall of Fame quarterback and a great player, and you know he had that ability um so I would definitely say that after o four about o four season. You know, we kind of – we balanced out a whole lot more, and then I, I think it really turned into an offensive team more so um, really like that '07 7 season, even though we were still really, really good on defense. But I thought that's where the shift happened. But earlier before that, I mean, because you could have made a case that – I think that maybe that third Super Bowl, Mike Vrabel deserved to be the MVP of the Super Bowl. And, you know, with the offensive touchdowns, several sacks, turnovers, and pressure on the quarterback and, you know – uh and, you know, so I, that, that's, that's the way I stand on it. But, you know, I, I, like I said, I just think it was a great compliment. And then you add the fact that we were, um, you know, had the best coach in football. Um, you know, you, I, I think it takes a lot, and we just had all of the recipe at the right time to, you know, offensive, defensively, and also special teams, Well, coach. Uh, we stayed hungry. You know, it was a family-like atmosphere. So, you know, there was a lot of great things going in our, in our favor. Well, you definitely
5: know, of course, Richard, uh, you know, if he gets, if you get in before he does, he's never going to speak to either one of us again. You know
7: Lorenzo, we're nine and a half minutes into this interview. Are you
8: tired yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I understand. I understand. You know, I understand the process. But um, <laughs> hey, you never know. Hey, let's. You know, we'll see. You uh, never know. All right, I'll take it out.
4: So, Richard, if the if the quota in this class is one player from Georgia, who should get it?
8: <laughs> oh man, <laughs> well it, it, it. Oh man, all all type of questions, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that was really good. Well, you know what, I, man, I, I'll say this. I think, like I said, I think champs. Uh, he's one of the best athletes that I've been around. You know, um, the ability to do so many things. He was so fast. He had ball skills. um you know, nobody really wanted to ever throw his way. And we put him on offense when we was at Georgia, too. He ran several touchdowns back and punt returns and, you know, that sort of thing. And so, um, and also he had a family lineage. I mean, his brothers played. I mean, so it was just really a football family from, uh, from champside. So, I mean, that's definitely a tough one as well. I mean, here's the thing, though. Know, like, you just want it. It's good to have great players in the conversation. You know, I mean, I think that's what it's all about. That's why I'm glad I don't have that job. <laughs>
7: Well, Richard, as you know, we're meeting this weekend to choose the class of 2019 for the Pro Football Hall. So a technical question to enlighten the voters there. How would you describe the role of a two-gap defensive tackle, and how important is it in Bill Belichick's defensive scheme?
8: Well, I think here's the bottom line. Defense has to start from the inside out and has to start up front. So you have to have a strong presence um, up front. I mean, I think that's what makes, Everything tick. like when you have difference makers up front, it makes it makes the linebackers' job easier. Um, you cover up so many things that uh, could possibly go wrong, you know. So um, I thought, like you know, for me defensively, like just to be able to uh, create separation, push the line of scrimmage, push the pocket, um, and it's, like I said, I mean sacks are great. Sacks are great numbers, but. If you can push the pocket and get the quarterback off the spot, make him throw bad throws or errant throws, have to focus in, uh, you know, two, two offensive linemen on you, the tight end or whatever, or having a running back come up and chip, I, I just think it makes everyone else's job that much easier. And, and here's the thing. It's several times uh, that I, wasn't, I didn't even show up on the stat sheet, but I got a game ball, you know? Um, and it might have said, like, zero tackles and or, you know, I mean, I mean, but you just just in the pressures. You, you know, it's, it's about impact. It's about the effect. And uh, that's really what you want your um, defensive linemen and difference makers up front. Because when you can rush the passer and you can stop the run, that's really the essence of football. It's about being physical, establishing uh, your dominance and your presence up front. And when I look for a defensive lineman, like here's the thing, when I'm sitting at home, I play GM sometimes, who I would draft or what else, and I knew all day long that um, it was the draft with uh, Khalil Mack and Jadavian Clowney. And I was like, I would have took uh, Khalil Mack first overall. And, you know, and a lot of my buddies was just talking about, you know, Clowney's um, ability and that sort of thing. But I just knew I was just like, at the end of the day, I see Khalil's Mac work, work ethic. You know, it's all the intangibles that you really don't see um, unless you just watch with a fine tooth comb and through a magnifying glass. And I just knew um, he was that type of player. He was a technician. He was going to do the little things. You know, he's going to be a great teammate. I mean, so once you establish that he's that caliber of player, what else? What are the other intangibles that he brings to the team? Is he nasty? Does he bring a a fierce attitude. Does he want to be the best? Is his desire to be the best? Like, does he want to compete? You know what I mean? Like, in my opinion, I really think defensive linemen have to be the tone setters uh, up front. And you have to be well-conditioned because you have to rush the passer and you also have to be able to stop the run. Well, that's if you want to be elite. I mean, some guys are just run stoppers or some guys are just pure pass rushers. But in order to be the best, in my opinion, I think you have to be able to do it all in terms of rush the passer Um, run to the football, uh, get your hands up, added balls, all of those things. And then also, when you add into it, well, I always said that I prided myself of never coming off the field regardless of the defense. Like, I didn't want to come off the field when Coach Belichick had, like, the Rabbits group where they had just, like, one or two defensive linemen, everybody else linebackers, goal line situations, all the passing, nickel, dime, all the coverages, our base defenses. I said, you know what, I want to be the guy that they say, I don't care what package we create, we can't have 93 off the field, (laughs) you know. So, um, and then, you know, not only just in New England, but then going out and planning a 4-3 in Oakland and still making consecutive Pro Bowls in a 4-3 system where I could just get upfield and create habits. So, um, even though... I'll say our offense didn't give us much help when in you know, Oakland because we stayed on the field forever and that, that sort of thing. But <laughs> it was just the perfect scenario. And, uh, you know, like I said, I just really, uh, you know, blessed and had a really blessed career, for sure.
7: Richard, thanks so much for the time. And we'll see you in Atlanta this weekend. That was Hall of Fame finalist Richard Seymour. Up next is the Two-Minute Drill. You're to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're
1: almost out of time,
0: but first...
4: That's, That's the two-minute warning.
5: Yes, sir, it's the two-minute drill, Ronnie. Let's get started. So Belichick says Rams defensive coordinator Wade Phillips hasn't changed in 30 years. Is that a slap in the face or a slap on the back? If on
1: the back, I wish I hadn't changed in 30 years because then I'd be back in San Diego
4: if it ain't broke don't fix it his defensive average 45 sacks in his 35 seasons as the head coach or coordinator oh. who
5: will get back to the Super Bowl first me you two or the Patriots the goal club
4: my money is on Clark or myself <laughs>
5: <laughs> what's a better Super Bowl record 4-0 and oh, or 5-3
4: and three?
1: I guess you mean Montana or Brady yeah. that chip's already failed Ron
5: Boston
4: Harbor. Only one quarterback in history lost more Super Bowls than Tom Brady.
5: Offensive line coach Dave DeGuglielmo was hired by Josh McDaniels to go to the Colts last year. He came, but Josh didn't. And, and elmo turned a line that led the NFL in sacks allowed in 2017 to the fewest in 2018. Then Frank Reich fired him. Would you have?
1: No, sir. I would have given him a year of free breakfast at Shapiro's.
4: Why did the Chargers fire Marty Schott in a 14-2 season? Welcome to the NFL.
5: Patriots' defense has allowed just 17.5 points per game over the final eight regular season games. Third lowest in the NFL. Are they better than people think? No,
1: they're absolutely as good as people think.
4: Ron, don't bring defense up. Listening to the show on a weekly basis, all the success seems to be about Tom Brady.
5: <laughs> Ex-Patriot quarterback Asante Samuel says his motto is, quote, I'll bet against Bill, but I won't bet against Tom. Is he saying the game is about Jimmys and Joes and not X's and O's? Nope. He's saying five and three beats four and zero.
4: Sounds like Samuel has more trust in the guy cashing the checks than the guy writing the checks.
5: <laughs> Does experience matter in the Super Bowl?
1: Ask the forty-one-year-old quarterback who won twice as many playoff games as anyone in
4: history. It didn't first Super Bowl. Not so much the fifty-one cents. <laughs>
5: Saints fans are soon to overturn the outcome of the NFC Championship game. What has a better chance of surviving,
4: their lawsuit or a snowball in hell? Hurricanes of Pat O'Brien's. A camel through the eye of a needle.
6: That's the end of the game. <laughs>
4: Thank Tony Gonzalez,
1: Richard Seymour, Jim Mersey and Gary Myers for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, com or themaven.io slash talkoffame, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, listen to us next week at this time and on this station. Thanks again for listening.